Our guest today is the journalist, political commentator and author, David Andelman. His illustrious career includes stints as the New York Times bureau chief in Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe. David was also a Paris-based correspondent for CBS News. He is currently an opinion columnist for CNN on international affairs and writes regularly for his own substack, Andelman Unleashed. David Andelman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. David, I'd like to start by asking you, what are the greatest foreign threats currently facing the United States? Oh, there's a whole host of them. Uh, the, the biggest threat, I guess, is the possibility of a, of a two-front war. Um, in other words, are we facing a war which we are effectively uh, pursuing by proxy, if you will, uh, with Russia through Ukraine? And the second question is, will there be a war over Taiwan or in some fashion around the China periphery? And I think that uh, fighting those two wars at the same time could be a, an enormous challenge, not only for the United States, but the entire Western alliance. And I'm talking about NATO, the sympathizing countries in, the, in, in Asia and so on. And, and uh, this is a real, I think this is the principal problem right now that the United States and, and the Western allies are confronting is how do we pursue this current need, desperate need in Ukraine at the same time, fend off other potential challenges, certainly in Asia, then we can also look, for instance, in the Middle East, we can look at Iran suddenly uh, developing the capacity for del a deliverable nuclear weapon. There are all sorts of other issues like that that loom on the horizon, but further on the horizon. But the principal concerns, I think, right now are certainly um, Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine and, um, and Asia. You mentioned that the threat, though, is uh, that the major threat is a two front war. Um... Is it, does that suggest armed conflict is is a is a danger with China? I like to think that the Chinese are rational enough to understand the, the cost to them of a of actually I know a shooting war. Um, there's no doubt about that. But you know, Xi Jinping, uh, he was just he's just been elected to his third five year term. He will have held office longer than Mao Zedong. He wants to be seen as the new the 21st century Mao, and he has to make a major um, breakout in in those terms. Remember. It was Mao who actually drove Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists off of mainland China onto Taiwan in the first place. Xi Jinping wants to now bring them back into, 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 the, into China's fold in a, in a definitively, shall we say. He would love to be able to do that in terms of political terms and economic terms and so on. But if he can't do that, I would say that military, is, military re results are not, not off the table. And I think he has to look and also what the consequences of that would be, though. And that's what I'm hoping China can perceive, because China has been spending billions of dollars on this Belt and Road Initiative to paint themselves as the world's friends, the world's support, a country you can rely on to, to make your lives better. And I think that a military action like Ukraine in Taiwan, I think that would persuade a lot of countries who are on the fence to say, Maybe that's not the kind of country we want to partner up with. How would you assess the Ukraine war one year on? Well, it's, it's going, I guess, as well as could be expected. In fact, better than expected at the outset. There's no question about that. Um, Ukraine is not lost. Uh, and that itself is an enormous victory. Russia is, is taking a tremendous pounding. And there's no doubt about that. The question is, how long can either side remain standing? And, and that's what the key issue right now is. And how much... How much interest is there in the West, sustainable interest, in really keeping Ukraine afloat? Because if the, the West doesn't keep Ukraine afloat, 
is going to collapse, no matter how badly off the Russians are. And the Russians have, you know, I've seen numbers as high as 200, 300,000 losses among Russian troops. I, I've heard uh, reports in, in recent days of, of the Russians of fighting with, uh, with pickaxes and shovels. I mean, it's, it's really, it's getting really ridiculous. I mean, they are in, they're in a, a lot of trouble in that respect. But so let's posit the future. What happens if China comes in with uh, vast stocks of material, which they obviously have stockpiled there? And, and the United States and, and some of the Western allies say, we've already dumped uh, how many tens of billions of dollars down that, uh, that and there's no, nothing to show for it, no victory to show for it. That's the concern right now. So um, uh, Bakhmut is the most immediate question. You know, what happens uh, if Bakhmut falls? Well, there are some suggestions it already has fallen, but who would notice? Uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly a, a, a major, uh, even provincial capital. Uh, it's a crossroad, basically, basically, literally a cross in the road. Um, uh, the Russians may have seized it, but again, at what cost? And and also, so you have to look at you have to look at their political situation, their military situation. None of that is good, but it's not a lot better from the United States and the Ukrainian point of view. David, if you were to issue a report card on the conduct of U.S. foreign policy regarding Ukraine over the last year, what would that report card say? Oh, I'd give it probably B plus, A minus. Uh, it's not obviously the best. Uh, there would be some things that I uh, would have liked to have seen accelerated. I would like to have seen them have um, uh, Abrams M1 tanks by now instead of however many months away they still are. I would have liked to have seen them had uh, Leopard tanks um, well before now. They are obviously now just showing up on the scene. I would like to see have seen a longer term commitment than three or six months or whatever for sanctions and so on. Uh, but again, that's a tribute more to Hungary and, um, you know, Putin's uh, uh, lone wolf uh, with inside uh, NATO and the uh, EU. Um, so I, I would say a B plus, A minus uh, so far. Um, it's not been perfect, but it's been pretty good. I mean, it's gotten the Ukraine. I mean, look, we have to think back. When this war began, people thought it was going to be over in a matter of days or maybe weeks. Um, the Russians were pushing down from uh, Belarus and, and um, southern Russia towards Kiev. Kiev was only like 40 miles away from the border. Um, and then all of a sudden, it stalled. Nothing happened. And suddenly it began to reverse. And this was an astonishing uh, change. of I mean, it, it Basically, it, it astonished every, every Western military analyst was just flabbergasted by what Ukrainians had managed to do with, at that point, minimal Western help. Uh, and then all of a sudden, that, of course, changed and Western help began coming in and became really a much more equal battle. And the Ukrainians were very much up to it. Ukrainians lost a lot of people, though. As Ukrainians are a much smaller country than Russia. It has fewer people to draw on and so on. And, and millions have fled. Uh, millions of families have fled. Um, it, it's, it's a very difficult situation right now. But I'm not convinced that it's much worse or um, it's certainly not much better, but certainly not much worse than Russia. Russia is in terrible shape as well. So, um, again, and I would say a B plus, A minus. David, how do you see the war in Ukraine developing and what is the possible endgame as you see it? Uh, everybody's talking about the endgame. What would the endgame look like? I, I'm not, I don't read a crystal ball. Um, you know, I think that there are all sorts of um, uh, black swans, if you, if you will, that are, that are hanging around out there. That, uh, ready to protect, perhaps to send on, to send on this. Look, what do we have coming up in the next year or so, next year and a half? We have an American presidential election. 
We have the Republicans who are, well, somewhat less enthusiastic about really helping out uh, Ukraine over the long term than the Democrats. Uh, we have to see who the Republican candidate is going to be. If it's Trump, um, we may be in some trouble. Even if it's DeSantis, we may be in some trouble. If he has, if we can see that they have some success. Republicans taking over both houses of Congress in the United States would be a major hurdle for for Ukraine to have to get over before, um, you know, for them to continue to get the kind of material support from the United States they've been getting in the past. What's going to happen in terms of stability within Russia? You know, it's very interesting. The um, I, I've watched the um, the Afghan war very closely, particularly during the time the Soviets were were uh, pursuing it. The Soviet Union was pursuing it. They have now lost, just in the last year, more uh, Russian um, soldiers' lives than was lost in the entire, their entire adventure, should we say, in, in Afghanistan. Um, and and this, is, this is very troubling. Bodies are beginning to come home in body bags to, to towns and villages all over Russia. And, and this could become eventually a real political problem. I am persuaded that is one of the main forces that led to the end of communism in the Soviet Union was the people who were saying, oh my God, what is happening here? This country, we're killing all of our next generation of people. It was like the Vietnam War was in the United States back in the, in the 60s and, and early 70s. Um, so, you know, I think this is something that we have to watch very carefully. What is going to be uh, Putin's future, but also the future of people around Putin as well, who are seen to be, have taken Russia into this adventure that is costing tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of young Russian lives. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, these are all issues that need to be addressed in the future. Do you think that the level of combat casualties in Ukraine could eventually destabilize the current Kremlin regime? I'm hoping it won't, frankly, because the, the, uh, the prospects of, of uh, Putin falling are, are too horrific to contemplate. It's not going to be a uh, Alexei Navalny who's going to follow or, or Garry Kasparov who's going to follow. Uh, Putin is going to be one of his other young Turks around him. And in many respects, they are more militant in, in many respects and less flexible even than Putin was. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping that um, I, I'm hoping that that he will see the light that we can that we can find also some solution that um, all sides can live with. It's not going to be China, by the way, that's going to be the mediator in, in this in this case. I don't know who's going to be the mediator, frankly, um, when when it's very interesting when um uh, when the Soviet Union invaded, um, or when Russia, rather, invaded, invaded uh, Georgia uh, some years ago, remember, it was Nicolas Sarkozy of France who walked in as the mediator. Uh, that, but, but Sarkozy had less of a, a dog in the show, if you will, um, than um, in the fight than, um, than, than Macron does, because he's supplying, France is supplying, um, albeit a whole lot less than, than some of the other Western powers, but he's supplying uh, aid and comfort to the Ukrainian side. So he's less seen as a a neutral arbiter, certainly more of a neutral arbiter than China, that's for sure. But uh, so we need to find the first thing we need to do is we need to see that our side is winning. And, and second, we have to find a way to um, make the other side, Russia, uh, understand that the costs are just simply going to be way too high and that Russia is going to stop being a major power because it will, its economy will have been destroyed, its military will have been destroyed. And um, for what end? David, is one of the lessons of the Ukraine war that having nuclear weapons is the ultimate deterrence and that Ukraine perhaps erred by giving up its nuclear weapons in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union? 
I, I don't think that Ukraine really had much of a choice in terms of keeping nuclear weapons. That, first of all, they weren't really their nuclear weapons to begin with. Um, they didn't really have any control over them. I'm not sure they really understood even how to work the, 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 the control systems and the guidance systems and so on uh, with respect to those nuclear, that nuclear arsenal. It was not appropriate for Ukraine to have a, a nuclear arsenal of its own. Um, going forward, I just can't see Russia being so foolish as to begin the, 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 the spiral into a, in some kind of a nuclear exchange between, between the, the West and, and, uh, and, and Russia. That would, be, that would mean a total destruction of eventually Russian civilization um, and possibly the, the, the end of life as we know it on Earth. So I have to believe that there is some rational corner of Putin's brain that understands that. That's not to say he's not going to use it as a, uh, a there was a wonderful cartoon that I was going to use on my Substack Handleman Unleashed. I run a cartoon every every uh, every Saturday, every weekend um, from Cartooning for Peace, which is a wonderful consortium of about 300 cartoonists around the world. But there was one from a, a um, Ukrainian cartoonist that shows um, Putin sitting at a table with a hand of cards in front of him. And he has one card up like this, and it's a card that has a nuclear mushroom cloud on it. Like and he's glowering. Is he going to play this card or not? I, I can't see him playing that card at this point. I really can't. What do you say to some of the commentators, some of them um, former government officials who point out that the West was foolish to even contemplate NATO membership of former Soviet republics and that pushing NATO up to the borders of Russia um, has invited this um, Russian revanchism? Well, you have to look at, I mean, all, not all, all Soviet republics were created equal, remember. Uh, I refer particularly to the, the Baltics, and, and I've spent a lot of time traveling through the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They were really kind of tacked on at the end, if you will. So it's really kind of unfair to say these were an integral part of, the, of Russia or the Soviet Union. Likewise, Ukraine, if you go back through Ukrainian history, the Ukrainians' history was not Russian history. In fact, Ukraine is, is, was, was a major uh, power in Europe, a major cultural and political and diplomatic center of Europe, while Russia was simply a few mud huts on the, on the, on the, on the Moscow River. Um, so it's hard to say that, that Ukraine really belonged in Russia, in the Soviet Union either. So each of these republics has reasons to be independent on their own, and I think that was entirely appropriate uh, response to the breakup of the Soviet Union. I'd like to go back to my question, David. Um, what do you say to the commentators, some of them former U.S. government officials, who opine that this Russian revanchism was encouraged by NATO's quote-unquote reckless expansion up to the borders of the former Soviet Union? Well, I don't say that it's right, reckless. I mean, these, these were countries that are independent countries. Um, um, you know, if you look at the former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic and now so Slovakia, um, all of these countries were, they were not Russian countries, Soviet countries. They were conquered by Russia at the end of World War II and then incorporated into this artificial pact, which was really an answer to NATO. So once they managed to break away from the Russian sphere of influence, I think it was entirely appropriate for them to, you know, seek, uh, seek, alliance with West. They, they see themselves as more European than they do Slavic. And, and I think that's a very important distinction and very important to understand. Some of them, for instance, like Hungary, like Romania, 
their languages are completely divergent from any Slavic language. Uh, in terms of culture and so on, uh, the Poles and the and the Russians have been at loggerheads for for centuries. Uh, equally, the the um, you know the, the Czechs and the Slovaks, um, which are more actually Germanic than than anything else. So it's hard to see how they how Russia could not look. The reason those countries went into the war, the reason Russia created this Warsaw Pact, is they wanted a a a shall we say a ban a a, um, a moat around their country that they could um, that that they could control and that would protect the mother Russia from any attack from the West. So the moat doesn't exist anymore, but it does exist in terms of the good faith by NATO and by the Western alliance not to pull what Russia did in Ukraine. Do you think that the former Warsaw Pact countries that entered NATO, namely Poland, Czech Republic, and of course the Baltic countries, have had a far more realistic assessment and understanding of Russian foreign policy and the threat posed by Russia over the last 20 years? Oh, I think there's no question about that. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, when I was in uh, Estonia, I was uh, in 2016, just before the Donald Trump's election as president of the United States. Um, I, a lot of people said, um, "Look, um, you know, we're terribly concerned about um, um, about uh, Trump taking over," and and they were concerned about it mainly because they understood how closely they were tied in, in the Russian mind to Mother Russia. And I'll just give an example. Uh, there was a Russian war memorial in, well, there were about 200 Russian war, war memorials all over Estonia, uh, a tribute to the, 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 the Russians who were Soviets who fell, you know, in defense of these countries, so-called, uh, during World War II. In fact, what happened was the Russians invaded them after World War, at the end of World War II. Excuse me. So, but, but, um, the, uh, the Estonians decided they were going to move one of these um, war memorials from the center of Tallinn out to the outskirts of Tallinn to a Russian cemetery there, which was a much more appropriate place. As it happened, the, um, the place where the, the war memorial had been um, very quickly became the NATO cyber defense center. But uh, the reason for that was because what, of what the, the, the Soviet, what Russia then decided to do after that. First, there was a series of riots protesting the, the moving of this, this war memorial. And then the, um, the Russians uh, staged the largest cyber attack on any NATO country that had ever been staged before or since. They virtually shut down Estonia for you know, a week, 10 days. The government, uh, the banks, banking system, uh, shops, um, everything, all were, were undertaking this huge DNS, denial of service attack. So I said to the, um, I had a long talk with the prime minister at the time, and I said, why didn't you invoke uh, Article 5 of the NATO alliance, an attack by, uh, on one NATO country is an attack on all? And he said, you know, the reason is no one was hurt by this. No one died as a result of this attack. So that is our, and I mean, it's a very, very sensible answer, not the kind of answer that would be designed to raise the temperature, but to lower the temperature. They understood the stakes for raising the temperature in a situation like that. No one died. No one was actually invaded. No tanks rolled. No shots were fired. So they may, eventually they, they managed to... Um, persuade the Russians, it was not a good idea to do this, um, and it stopped. And, um, you know, things went back to normal. But that's the kind of thing that I think countries that really understand the Russian mentality, having lived in their thrall, if you will, for, you know, so many decades, 
I think that is an incredibly valuable um, member of the NATO alliance. And there are, you know, all, of the, all of the former Warsaw Pact countries are in that position. Some, like uh, Hungary, for instance, um, were actually, in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, were actually invaded by Soviet troops to try to suppress uh, efforts at their, um, you know, you know, winning some kind of uh, freedom or, or independence from, from the Kremlin. So they understand the, the, the stakes, and they understand the mentality that forms that kind of an, um, uh, actions in, on the part of Russia. What do you think countries, the, the, the mainstays of the European Union, if not the NATO alliance, Germany and France got wrong about relations with Russia and the threats posed by Russian revanchism? I guess what they really got wrong, if anything else, if, if nothing else, was the, you know, the belief that they could, in fact, um, negotiate in some fashion rationally with someone like Vladimir Putin. Um, obviously, that, that didn't work. Uh, Putin, I think, used some of those negotiations simply to try to show what a good person he was and that the, you know, it was really, he was pushed into this war by forces that he had no real control over and that uh, uh, the West should have understand, understood that sort of a thing. Do you think the Western alliance responded correctly to the invasion of Crimea, the seizure of Crimea by Russia in 2014? I know I would have liked to have seen them gone in and, and, and really tried to take it back uh, at that point. I think now it's probably too late, um, or certainly the, the price would be much, much higher now. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen that. I think the fear was, of course, that it was going to result in the kind of larger conflict that we have arrived at today. Um, I'm not sure that the failure by by the West to do that didn't encourage Putin to think that maybe they wouldn't, in fact, um, you know, um, pay close attention and, and, you know, help help Ukraine um, uh, maintain its, its democratic uh, form of government. Um, I think that's entirely possible. I think that and, and the American um, actions in Afghanistan suggested to, may very well have suggested to um, Putin and his advisors that, um, you know, we, they, we we were we were easy uh, we were we were an easy lay as we say we we was, we were just going to roll over um, in the end and and not take the kind of tough measures that were necessary and that we have taken. I think he may have been caught a bit off guard. I think he may have been caught a bit more off guard than we were. But in terms of Crimea, yeah, I, I mean, I like to see I like to think that would have happened. I, I think back to the time when um, uh, General Schwarzkopf in, um, in, uh, in in Gulf in the Gulf War. Um, he had he had uh, taken uh, Kuwait back for um, for the um, for for um, uh, uh, for the Kuwaitis, and he was uh, poised in in, the, uh, in outside of Baghdad and, and wanting to go on in and take take out Saddam Hussein. And George H. W. Bush said, "No, no, 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 no. We shouldn't do that. Um, uh, we should um, just pull back, and uh, we'll we'll let them work out their own problems." I think that was a huge mistake at that time, and I think we very well may have made a similar mistake in Crimea. But do you think there was an appetite by President Obama and Chancellor Merkel for a resolute response at that time? Maybe not. But the question is, how much of a how much of a how much of a response was necessary would have been necessary by the United States and the West to do that? Uh, certainly not the same level of response we've had to and for the and for that duration as is now. Um, and and one has to wonder that if we did succeed in doing that, whether Putin might not have had second thoughts about trying the more, you know, dramatic uh, uh, efforts at, at taking control of all of Ukraine. If he couldn't hold Crimea, how is he going to hold, seize and hold all of Ukraine? That's something I think would have had to have been part of his calculus. 
So do you think the lackluster Western response to Putin's seizure of Crimea was laid the groundwork for the Ukrainian invasion that took place last year? I think that it certainly didn't help. Um, I think it was part of the, I don't think there was a much, there are much broader issues, of course, here. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting. Putin might very well have found different ways of preparing for his invasion. He might very well have thought uh, differently about how he was going to do it with the forces that he needed to array. And so, on. I mean, in the end, the, the re this, this invasion has failed simply largely because the Russian military is, is basically an empty shell. Um, and, and I, I kind of knew that going back to the 19, 1980s. I used to go there a lot uh, for, for, CN, for, for CBS when I was based in Paris. I speak a bit of Russian and um, they sent me in uh, very often when the, um, the local guy couldn't stand it anymore and had to get out. So I would spell him. Um, but, you know, um, I, I ran into some Soviet um, tank drivers. Young young guys who, um, who drove uh, tanks in the Russian army, and they told me that they had they were each issued sledgehammers to knock the first the, the gear shift into first gear, uh, particularly in the winter months, uh, with a sledgehammer because it was so badly constructed. These tanks. Now you have to ask yourself, um, if 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 a country can't make tanks that can you can't can't can just kind of slip into first gear fairly easily, how is it going to win a war uh, in the in the twenty first century? That um, requires really a tremendous amount of of tactical understanding and 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 really mechanized efficiency, and and Russia just doesn't have that. I'd like to widen the lens a little bit beyond Ukraine. What are some of the most overlooked foreign threats to the United States that we don't often read about? Well, I think what what's, what's very interesting is what, what's happening with the stands, the stands, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Um, um, basically the, the old Soviet republics of the stands. It's very interesting because um, uh, Biden, uh, in his trip out to the G20, he stopped at four of the major stands along the route and talked with their heads of state. Now, these are not necessarily people you would think would be very um, receptive to the visit by an American secretary of state, but they were. And, and one of the reasons they were is that they're looking at this situation in um in, in uh, Russia right now, Russia and Ukraine, and they're seeing themselves potentially in the crosshairs in the future. And they certainly don't want to be on the losing side, if you will. So I think that is a major foreign policy challenge for the U.S. is to, um, is to make sure that they aren't in some fashion sucked into the Russian orbit. Um, if provided things don't go well in Ukraine, that they are not also sucked in further into the Russian orbit. I think that's a major foreign policy challenge. Uh, if you look at some of the others, I mean, the others are obvious. I mean, it's, it's Iran. Does Iran get a nuclear weapon? What do we do then? Uh, does, um, does Israel come out and, and do what it has threatened to do in the past, which is to try to destroy it with, um, you know, some sort of a um, uh, an aerial or ground attack? Um, I mean, that's just a horrific concept. I think um, Africa is a, is a major problem. I think we need to look very closely at who is winning in Africa. Is it is it Russia? Is it China? Certainly not the United States at this point. Um, so we have to look at all of these. Those, those are areas, I think, that are also very important to look at for the future. I'd like to um, shift our lens towards the United States and, and U.S. public opinion. Um, what do you think are some of the most important misapprehensions that the U.S. public has about U.S. status in the world and the conduct of U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think that the American people have long had long thought of themselves as sort of the shining beacon on the hill. 
that the world should look up to in, in the future going forward as the as the um the 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 model that they that every country should aspire to in terms of democracy, in terms of freedom, in terms of respect for law and order and, and so on. And that's no longer the case, I think. Um, it's very interesting. When I was at um, running World Policy Journal uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I found a, a survey that had been done on what um, what countries, when the, the countries that are re- remodeling their constitutions or rewriting them, what constitution do they look at as their model? And the most, the most, and I ask people this question, it's a great um, uh, party question. You know, I said, so which, which country do you think people are looking at? And they said, well, of course, it must be the United States, you know, 1776, 1789, you know, we have a wonderful constitution. It's been, it's, it's, it's served us well for almost three centuries and so on. It's not. It's the Canadian constitution, believe it or not. Canada is the model for more people than any, more countries than any other single constitution in the world. And I often thought that is really remarkable. And the reason is that the Canadian Constitution has enshrined in it the kinds of human values that a lot of, especially third world countries, but countries that are trying to rewrite their own constitution and embark on some form of democracy can respect, even if it's not necessarily going to lead to the kind of, what they see as kind of chaos that's going on in the United States right now. That Canada has somehow managed to avoid so much of the bickering and the chaos that uh, has really engulfed the United States and its constitution, I think, they believe is a, a bedrock foundation for that success. Henry Kissinger has spoken often about the importance of having a solid public support for the conduct of major U.S. foreign policy initiatives, especially in regard to the Vietnam War. Do you think that U.S. foreign policy always needs to be viewed through the prism of U.S. domestic politics? I think that, unfortunately, it often is viewed through the prism of American domestic politics. No one should know that better than Henry. Um, he was, a, by the way, a professor of mine at Harvard back in the 1960s before he became a major power figure in Washington and around the world. So I, I, I do have an immense respect for some of his thoughts. Um, that's not necessarily shared by many of my colleagues, but... Um, I, I do still have a, a tremendous respect for his, his thinking on a lot of these issues. Look, there has to be a certain um, a, a certain coordination between um, American foreign policy and the Americans view Ameri- Americans vo- American voters' views of, of foreign policy. What I'm what I'm disappointed in is uh, lately how little attention is being paid to most foreign issues beyond, say, the Ukraine war um, on American media. I'm talking about the major media. I'm talking about network television, the evening news, um, the major national newspapers, um, the major television networks. Um, I, I don't think that they really devote very much attention at all to the um, to the to the um, importance of foreign policy and America's role in the world. Now, that's a very difficult thing to show on to, on the evening news in in you know in a, a minute forty five um, a piece from from wherever. Um, right, it's very. Very difficult, but I know because I tried to do that for so many years when I was overseas. But it's essential with that 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 does take place. And, and really, if you if you examine what's, it just astonishes me sometimes the stories that find themselves onto the front pages of the NBC Nightly News or CBS Evening News or or wherever, um, ABC World News Tonight. None of it really has very much relevance to America's place in the world. And I think that's my, that is one of my, I think one of the great weaknesses right now 
in the American political system is that Americans are not being educated and don't really understand how important America's place in the world is to the world and to America's survival and prosperity in that world. Is that a failure of the U.S. political class, the media, or both? I think everybody, everybody involved, there's, there's no doubt. Um, uh, you know, frankly, it's, 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 we're, we're a moving target. And, and um, one of the things I do on Andal and Unleashed every week is I have, I do this, um, the week that was, this was the week that was, and, and I look at how others view America and how others view the world. And it's very interesting to look at America through the prism of some of the media around the world. It's a very different sort of prism than that what we are getting in our own position. So if you're looking at America through the, the eyes of the, the Singapore Straits Times or the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong or Corriere della Sera from Milan or Le Monde in Paris and so on, it's a very different sense of what the world looks like every week. And that the uh, and this is what the um, foreigners are, or people in other countries are coming to understand about the United States, what they see in their media. And, and that is... From my perspective, that is very dangerous right now. You've been a foreign correspondent, political commentator for decades. You visited, I think, reported from more than 86 countries. What do you think are, have been some of the notable successes of U.S. foreign policy over the arc of your career and also some of the notable failures? Well, successes are pretty clear. I mean, look, we... we we, uh, let's go back to starting with the end of World War II or this Korean War. Um, there has been peace on the Korean Peninsula, believe it or not, since the end of the Korean War in the 1950s. Uh, you know, it's not very necessarily been the most stable um, place. And, and, you know, certainly it is a, an enormous threat um, to the, the stability of the world, um, uh, particularly with um, North Korea uh, clearly in possession of a nuclear weapon. But nevertheless, that's a real success. Forming, drawing that 38th parallel that was a red line. I talk a lot about red lines in my book. That was a red line that really worked. It has worked to preserve the peace. And on the southern part of the, the peninsula, uh, Seoul and South Korea have developed as an enormous world economic power. And to the north, it's been a gulag. Uh, it's, it's horrific. So we can see that that's a very clear win. There are a whole lot of other wins as well. I mean, the um, um, we've, we've established a, a, a NATO alliance that has, has been unified and has protected the, the peace of, of, of Western Europe, uh, the United States, and indeed much of the rest of the world um, for, what, 50 years now, 60 years? So, I mean, that's been a huge success. In terms of the failures, I mean, they're legion. Let's start with Vietnam, you know, Afghanistan, um, the, 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 the Middle East, uh, you know, um, Iraq and Iran. Uh, I mean, all of these areas have been uh, tremendous failures, I think, in so many respects. But I'm not sure how we could have done much better. Um, the rise of, of um, um, the rise of, of um, the Sunni Shiite uh, schism, the, um, the the violent breaks between the different forms of of Islam, uh, the rise of Islamic terrorism, and all that. I don't know how the United States or any of the West could have prevented that more more directly. The um, the Arab Spring. I had I had tremendous hopes for the Arab Spring. You know, it fell apart because of a series of dictators uh, who were anxious on maintaining their power in places from Tunisia and Algeria to uh, to uh, to Egypt and, um, and and Iraq and the Maghreb. So it's you know, and we do the best we can, but we're not we're not the world's policeman. We're not the world's mediator. Um, I think that the um, 
frankly, the United, the United Nations could have been structured much better, much more effectively if a, a veto hadn't been given to the five major powers in the Security Council. I think that was a huge, uh, an enormous mistake at Yalta. So there we are. To what extent do you think U.S. foreign policy challenges and perhaps their failures are the result of U.S. overextension or underextension? Well, the U.S. has overextended in certain places. Um, I'm not sure. You know, a lot of it had to do with them. Well, take Vietnam for open. I mean, there were these, all of these forks in the road that were very interesting as we go back to the last decades. There was a fork in the road in, in, uh, in Vietnam. I, I suspect that if uh, John Kennedy had not been assassinated, we might not have gotten into Vietnam in quite the same fashion that we did under Lyndon Johnson and, and Richard Nixon. I think that was an enormous fork in the road right there. I think in terms of another fork in the road, you know, if, imagine if Al Gore had been elected president. Um, uh, right. Uh, would we have gotten into the Middle East and Afghanistan the way we did? Probably not, I suspect. So, you know, there are all of these forks in the road, but you can't second guess history. And as a, I was trained as an historian, and I, I, I like to think that history has kind of um, motivated a lot of my, um, uh, or, or, you know, excited a lot of my, my writing in, as a journalist. Um, you, you can't actually second guess history. You have to play it as it lays and, and see, we've taken that path. So what's going to happen next? And what is the best way of getting back on the straight and narrow. David, what are the challenges presented by China? Well, the principal challenge is that China really wants to be seen as a as the major power in the world, apart from the United States. And and uh, in fact, perhaps the leading power in the world. And, and this is a subject that is, I think, going to be very important going forward. Chinese believe that there are two superpowers right now. There's China and there's the United States. They want to be recognized in that. What China wants more than anything else is respect. And, and we have to understand how, do we, how can we give them this respect without necessarily ceding any of our desires for democratic systems that will proliferate in the future in parts of the world that are still, should we say, on the fence. So I think China's principal challenge to the United States is how do we find a way of getting along with them, maybe trading with them, while at the same time putting a containment, a containment vessel around them so that they don't suddenly burst out and try to destabilize much of the world that is so important to us. We're coming to the end of our conversation, and I wanted to put you in a slightly difficult position of asking you if you had some advice to offer to the U.S. foreign policy establishment, to the White House, to the State Department, what would that advice be on how to conduct a better or more effective U.S. foreign policy? Well, far be it from me as a journalist simply to, to advise government officials. I, I, I do believe that the best journalists are not those who, who pontificate and who try to advise people, but simply report on what's actually happening and explain it. But I guess what I would say is that it really foreign policy needs to be conducted with a degree of respect, respect for what others want and need, what their needs and desires are, what's good for their country, and not necessarily what is good for the United States. And all too often the U.S. has responded in terms of foreign policy as to what's good for America is good for the world. That's not necessarily the case. So we have to really understand that countries want and need respect. And that's, that's the, that is preeminently the philosophy that should govern our foreign policy going forward. And I think in that respect, it will be successful. David Andelman, thank you very much for talking with us on Discern This. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.